Welcome to another episode of Mike's Money Picks. Today on the podcast, we are going to be previewing the Players' Championship this week's stop on the PGA Tour. If you are playing DFS, if you are betting, if you are playing one and done, we will cover all of it here on this podcast in under 30 minutes, guaranteed, kind of like dominoes. But the Players' Championship is one of the flagship tournaments on the PGA Tour. Some would call it the fifth major. I call it one of the integral pieces of one of the best weekends on the sports calendar, as it is also college championship week in college basketball. As a reminder, we will have college basketball content coming your way every day the rest of the week here on the podcast. But today, we're devoting it to the golf. We're talking about the Players' Championship. Like I said, one of the best tournaments on the PGA Tour. All right, so if you want to be um, notified when new episodes drop, make sure you hit that subscribe button, and please help me out by hitting that rate and review button as well. Um, Like I said, big-time golf tournament this week, so we've got a big-time episode coming your way. But first, a quick word from our friends at Anchor. All right, so let's kick things off by talking about the course. TPC Sawgrass is the venue for the Players' Championship. It is one of the most recognizable courses on tour. If you have played any of the PGA Tour video games over the years, whether it's Tiger Woods, the Golf Club, PGA 2K, whatever, it's all been on there. And you have seen this island green. Hole 17, one of the most famous holes in all of golf, which is also part of one of the best stretches in all of golf where you've got the par 5 16th, par 3 17th, and then long par 4 18th to close out this course. And it generally creates a pretty thrilling finish, which we got last year when Cam Smith um, put one in the water on 18 and then had to scramble for par. Cam Smith, unfortunately, not at this event because he went to live. Whatever. Anyway. Let's talk about the specs of this course. It is a par 72, and it is only 7,200 yards. It is not a super long course by any means. And it actually has three reachable par fives, and it really features short par threes. Most of the par fours are pretty average in length, if I'm being honest, but the shorter par fives and the shorter par threes are kind of what makes this a little bit of a shorter track, which does not box out the longer hitters. Now, as I'm saying that, that is a characteristic of Pete Dye design golf courses, which this one is designed by the legend Pete Dye. So it features a lot of Pete Dye's general features. Holes are non-linear, meaning you're not just going to walk up to a tee box, hit a straight tee shot, hit it straight into the green, and, you know, hit putt for birdie and try to, you know, maybe make par if you don't. So that is not what Pete Dye designs do, right? There is meanderings, there is water hazards, there are tree trouble, there's just all kinds of stuff that's going on. There's bunkers that like make no sense at where they're at until you're in one. Um, and then there's just water lurking all over the place. And there's a Pete Dyed course that is close to me locally that I've played at quite a few times. I've actually played it last weekend, if I'm being honest. And, you know, it kind of all the stuff that you see with Sawgrass on TV lines up with even, you know, a public golf course that Pete Dye designed in North Carolina. Like, you know, there's just trouble lurking everywhere. There's times where you could be in the fairway and still not have a direct shot to the green because of something, whether it's water, whether it's trees, whether it's, you know, a dog leg. And there's just times where you just find yourself going, dang, like, why does that have to be there? Or why does that have to be shaped like that? And well, that's all Pete Dye design. He's trying to make it harder on you and look harder on you visually, um, as opposed to just allowing you to just tee off, right? So what that means for us, you know, in picking golfers this week is that position off the tee is more important than distance. Longer hitters are not going to be boxed out. And this course can be very susceptible to the weather, which leads me into talking about last year's edition of this tournament. So last year, the weather like totally killed half the field. Like the way the wind worked out, pretty much half the field was playing in like gale force winds. And you just stood almost no chance at making the cut if you were in that wave. So I'm willing to forgive a lot of guys missing a cut last year if they were in the bad wave. I'm not 
probably going to take the time and go research if they were or not. If they missed the cut, I'm just going to kind of assume they were in the bad wave. Now, this is also one of the most volatile courses to predict year in and year out. You get a lot of kind of random winners here. You get some of the best golfers randomly miss a cut. It's just one of the harder to predict events on tour. Now, to prove that stat, only eight golfers have made the cut in each of the last three editions of this tournament, which is an important number because many of you may remember this tournament was actually canceled in 2020. Round one had been played when kind of COVID kicked off, I guess would be the word I would use to describe it. Hideki Matsuyama was the first round leader, and they decided to just kind of cancel the rest of the tournament. Maybe I'm crazy. I thought they kind of could have finished a golf tournament that they started just you know, social distancing, but you know, it is what it is. Anyway, we've only had three editions of this tournament that have been played in March. The tournament was moved from May to March in 2019. Um, you may remember Brooks Kepka winning back-to-back -back majors that were PGA championships when they moved it from the back of the four majors to the front of the four majors. With that move came moving the players from May to March. So 2019, 21, and 22 are the only editions of this tournament that were played in March. So I know what you're probably thinking, wait a minute, if course history here is so volatile and we only have three additions like with this climate to go off of, then, you know, can we use a little bit of comp courses? Well, this course is one that's kind of hard to compare to others because there's a lot of different features of it, right? So it really kind of belongs to three different groups, which are each its own. The first is that it is a Florida course, like PGA National for the Honda Classic, like Bay Hill of the Arnold Palmer Invitational, like Copperhead for the Valspar Championship all of which feature Bermuda greens, all of which have water lurking. Um, however, I will say geographically speaking, this course is actually not that far from Sea Island, which is the home of the RSM Classic. So, you know, in terms of, I guess, the climate, that might be another one to look at as well. Now, TBC Sawgrass is also a TPC course. It's in the name. So TPC courses all have similar features where they are very cleanly manicured, like the fairways and the rough and the bunkers are all in pristine condition. And they all kind of feature like just kind of standard golf course features, right? Like most of them are par 72 or maybe even 71. Um, most of them feature a par 5 that is reachable, but not all par 5s that are reachable. Just traits like that that are in common with TPC courses. This does have that, right? So the TPC courses you might compare this one to would be like Scottsdale, the Waste Management Phoenix Open, the TPC River Highlands, home of the Travelers Championship, TPC Southwind, home of the FedEx St. Jude, and TPC Twin Cities, home of the 3M Open, all of which have very similar features here to Sawgrass. Now, Sawgrass is also a Pete Dye course, which we've talked about already. Most notable Pete Dye courses on the PGA Tour are Harbortown, home of the RBC Heritage, um, the PGA West Stadium course, which is the American Express Tournament, TPC River Highlands, hey, that one popped up twice for the Travelers Championship, and Austin Country Club, which hosts the match play. So uh, you've got all kinds of different buckets that you can look at to compare courses, and I'm even going to add two because there are two courses where, wildly enough, there are guys that have won both of them, and looking at the features of the course, it kind of makes sense a little bit. The first one is Wildlife, which is the Sony Open, is the tournament that's played there. Uh, it's been won by Cam Smith and Justin Thomas and now Siwoo Kim this season. Um, it's another short course that is coastal. It's got Bermuda greens. It kind of makes sense that that would track. 
And then the second one is the Wyndham Championship at Sedgefield in North Carolina. Um, and that one's been won by Siwoo Kim and Webb Simpson. That one is a Donald Ross design, not a Pete Dye design, but there are some similar features. Um, it's a very short course. Um, there is water hazards lurking. It's a very much a positional golf course as well. Um, so those two courses actually have a lot of success that kind of align with TPC Sawgrass. So when we talk about the golfers, we're going to be identifying whether or not they have success at any of those courses that we just named because all of them kind and have a little bit of a correlation with sawgrass. In summation, the kind of golfer that we want this week, we want one who profiles to be good at approach shots. Because if you're good at approach shots, you're going to be good at positioning yourself off the tee, which you can then use to hit your good approach shots and, you know, get on the green and be able to putt for birdie. Or I'll turn to number two is you're going to miss the green and you're going to be able to scramble. All right, guys who are good at approach are generally pretty good at scrambling as well. I'm not really looking for bombers this week because there's going to be a lot of tee shots where driver is not going to be in hand. Um, there's just a lot of dog legs or a lot of times where the best spot is probably where if you would hit a three wood or you know a long iron off the tee um, so really we want guys that can hit greens and if they're not going to hit greens they're going to be able to scramble to get par and also this is a tournament that can easily get in your head with all the water lurking and all the very difficult holes that are abound and so we want a guy who's not going to be unfazed we want a guy who's been in contention at this tournament or at major championships before that you know you know he's got that dog in them, I guess would be the way to kind of describe it. We want guys that have the ability to win golf tournaments, right? So let's now talk about the individual golfers we want to profile, starting at the very top of the board, but we're going to take a quick breather first. All right, so sitting at the top of the board is none other than John Rahm, who is I would say the best golfer in the world right now, even though he's coming off of a big disappointment at Bay Hill where he, you know, just absolutely killed it in the first round. Everybody was comparing him to Prime Tiger after Thursday and then, you know, had three just kind of crappy rounds. What was really unusual for John Rahm is that he was losing strokes off the tee in those three rounds, which is not typical for one of the best, you know, drivers of the golf ball in the world. Now, he does have some decent success at the comp courses. He has a win at the American Express, which was one of them. And he has pretty good history here at the players. He's made his last three cuts here. Um, two of the best finishes that he had were in ninth and 12th. So you're not going to have to pull my leg to play John Rahm, right? But I don't necessarily think he is worth the cost on DraftKings and FanDuel over guys that are below him. I think on DraftKings, it's a little bit more pronounced. But on FanDuel, you know, it's probably more worth it to pay for John Rahm than it would be on DraftKings. But I don't mind going down to some of the guys below, if I'm being totally honest. One of those guys below is Roy McIlroy, who, if you remember who we talked about on the podcast at Bay Hill last week, it went about as we expected, right? He was just really good tee to green, and he was just very neutral with the putter. He didn't really gain or lose a whole lot of strokes over the course of the whole week, and with that, he still almost won the tournament. He had a putt on 18 that would have forced a playoff with Kurt Kitayama. So what you're looking at is if Rory can just gain strokes with the putter, like he's probably going to win the golf tournament because his tee to green game is there. Now, if you're looking at his history here at the players, it's been great. He won here in 2019. He did have a missed cut here in 2021, which you know, it's not great, but like I said, this is a volatile event. I like the fact that he's won this tournament, and I also like the fact that his best putting surface is Bermuda Greens. So if there's anywhere where he is going to gain strokes putting, it's probably going to be here on his favorite surface. 
Below Rory is Scotty Scheffler, who was in the mix at Bay Hill, and just like Rory, he putted around neutral. He didn't really gain or lose a whole lot of strokes. If he just gained with the putter, he probably would have won the golf tournament. Now, he doesn't have the best history here at the players. He was 55th here last year, and if I remember correctly, he actually played in the bad wave uh, of weather, so that kind of makes that finish a little more impressive, and he missed the cut here in his first appearance in 2021. However, he really does rack them up at the comp courses. He has two wins at TPC Scottsdale. He won the match play at Austin Country Club, and his recent form is killing it also. He hasn't finished worse than 12th in any event since October, which cannot be said for Rory or John Rahm, so I really wouldn't have a problem with going with Scotty Scheffler. It really just depends on what you value in terms of what you want to play, right? Like, Rom is clearly the most talented golfer in the world right now. Rory has the best course history. Scotty Scheffler has the best form coming in. Which one do you value is your choice to make. Looking further down the board is Xander Schauffele, and um, not my favorite play this week, y'all. He was a runner-up here in 2018, and he hasn't made the cut since. This just doesn't really track as a Xander venue to me, so I'm probably just going to pass on him this week. Right below Xander, though, is Max Homa, who has been playing the best golf of his career in the last three months. He also has a win at a TPC course, TPC Potomac uh, in Maryland, which was the host of last year's Wells Fargo Championship. Now, if you roll with Max Homa in DraftKings or betting or one and done, it's more reliant on recent form than anything else. He really doesn't win a whole lot outside of California, but he's kind of showing you the upside and he's playing the best golf of his career. So I could kind of buy into it a little bit, but I definitely think that his defining feature right now is his recent form coming in. Below Max Homa is Patrick Cantlay, who has everything going for him at this tournament, except for course history. Patrick Cantlay plays very well at TPC courses. He plays very well at Pete Dye courses, lost in a playoff at Harbortown last year. Uh, he's also coming off of a third place and a fourth place finish in his last two events, which means he has great recent form coming in. He's also fit, you know, he fits the profile pretty well. He's an accurate positional golfer who is great on approach, which is what we want this week. But he's missed his last three cuts here. So I don't really know what to do with Cantlay this week because everything points to Cantlay except for his history at this event. So, if you value course history, stay away. If you don't value course history, fire away with Patrick Cantlay. Justin Thomas is next up on the board, and his recent form has just been okay. He's got four straight top 25 finishes, but hasn't really ever been in position to win any of those golf tournaments. But the good news is, is that the putter has been truly dreadful for him in 2023. And so, um, much like what I've been saying about Rory and about Scheffler, the tee to green game is there. If he can just turn it around to neutral with the putter, he can be in contention to win this golf tournament, which is what happens when he does, right? That's how he won the PGA Championship last year. He had a string of terrible putting weeks, and what did he do? Stayed the same tee to green player and just made some putts, and he won the PGA Championship. Now, Thomas actually has the best recent form of anybody, or I'm sorry, best course history of pretty much anybody here. He's made his last three cuts here, and he won the event in 2021. Since the event moved to March, he has not missed a cut. I think it's all systems go on Justin Thomas this week. Tony Finau is a guy that I honestly love playing in DFS, but I just don't think this is the best week for him. Uh, he's only made the cut at this event two times in six tries, and he's never finished inside the top 20 in this event. Now, you might be saying, you know, the same argument I made for Max Homa. He's been playing the best golf of his career, right? He's a better Tony Finau now than he was earlier. But I don't know. To me, that's a big enough sample size at one event to just think that this course might not be for him. And so I'm probably willing to pass on Tony Finau this week. 
Sung JM is a guy that I feel like honestly plays every single week. Like doing these podcasts weekly, I feel like I have to talk about Sung J every week. And I'll be honest, looking at it, I kind of think he might could use a break. Like he makes the cut at all these tournaments, but he kind of just fades on the weekend, has his worst rounds on the weekend. And you got to wonder how much of that is fatigue for a guy who is playing pretty much five or six rounds of golf every week. And so uh, I'm probably going to pass on Sung Jay this week. I do think the course fit is good, but I, I just worry about his general fatigue level and how much he's been playing and how it hasn't really translated to great finishes on the weekends. Victor Hovland is next up, who came in ninth here last year, who, honestly, he had a terrible Sunday at Bay Hill. Heading into that final round, I really thought he had a chance to win. Um, he's one of the best ball strikers in the field, pound for pound, um, at Bay Hill, but he really just gave up all of his strokes chipping around the green, and he just really struggled with chipping at Bay Hill. And so maybe what is kind of good news at the players is there isn't a whole lot of chipping because if you miss – um, you're probably going to be in a bunker or you're probably going to be in the water. So maybe this is a course that actually kind of um, dampens his weaknesses or lessens his weaknesses, I guess I could say better. Um, but anyway, I just think that this is a decent spot for Victor Hovland. And if he keeps up the ball striking that he had at Bay Hill, he will be all right this week at the players. Will Zalatoris has one career win and it came at a TPC course, TPC Southwind of the FedEx St. Jude Championship. Now, he didn't play all that well at Bay Hill, but I'm kind of willing to forgive him for that. Will Zalatoris can be a good positional golfer, right? He's a guy that, generally speaking, he plays better at long courses that require you to be positional because he can be that accurate with a driver in hand and with a long iron in hand hitting into greens. So it kind of doesn't give him as big of an advantage for the courses to be short, but he is a guy that can play positionally, so I think that he could have success here at this event. And that tracks with his two appearances here. They've been 21st and 26th. So I think this could be another good week for Will Zalatoris. Jordan Spieth is the last guy that I'm going to talk about in this section. Um, he ended up with a T4 at Bay Hill. But man, if you watched on Sunday, it was a roller coaster. Um, he was rolling in long putts, you know, hitting tee shots into crowds, hitting approach shots into bunkers, holing out from off the green. Like it was just an absolute wild ride. But hey, I think that's what you get with Jordan Speed at this point in his career, right? When he's hot, he's hot. When he's not, he's not. And so if you're looking for a guy down here that has winning upside, Jordan Speed surely does. He has a win at a Pete Dye course at Harbortown. But I just don't necessarily think that he's a very consistent option. And it's just as likely that he could give you a missed cut. All right, that does it for the top of the board. Let's take a quick breather and then let's talk about some value plays. All right, so the next guy up on the board that I have a lot of interest in is Shane Lowry, who rates out as one of the best players at Pete Dye courses in general. He doesn't really have a whole lot of career wins at Pete Dye courses, but he just always seems to make the cut, play well, and finish well at these type of tracks. It really seems to suit his game well as a guy who just has creativity and can shape shots and isn't really afraid of anything that he can see on the golf course. And that kind of tracks with his last two finishes here at the players. He's came in 13th and 8th in his last two trips, and I'm willing to forgive the mediocre finish at Bay Hill for his most recent event. I just don't think that course was the best fit for him. Um, he did have a fifth place finish at the Honda before Bay Hill, though. This shows that his game is on the right track, and I absolutely have no problem going with Shane Lowry this week. Now, Tom Kim is a guy that we got to talk about because when you look at his recent form, it's very interesting, right? He's made the cut at the last three elevated events that he's played, but none of them have been top 30 finishes. And when you look at his track record, it's all down to the putter. When the putter is hot, he's able to win golf tournaments like he did at the Wyndham and like he did at TBC Summerlin with the Shriners. 
And if you realize, those were also two of my comp courses that he's won at. Or you get a bad putting week from Tom Kim, and you get a week where he misses the cut like he did at the Sony, or just never really contended like the last three elevated events. And so if the putter is hot, Tom Kim absolutely gives you winning upside. If it's not, he's probably going to miss the cut this week. Now, speaking of this week, this is also his first trip to this event, but I kind of like Tom Kim's mental game. Like, if you watched him at the President's Cup, he was absolutely unfazed. Like, he just was not intimidated by a crowd, loved playing in the crowd. So I don't think this course is going to spook him or intimidate him, but I definitely wonder about how he's going to navigate it with it being probably his first competitive rounds at this course. But, like I said, if he has the putter rolling, he does give you big-time winning upside. Speaking of winning upside, let's talk about a guy who's won this event before, and that is Jason Day, who his recent form is really good. He's had four straight top 10 finishes coming into this event, and this is an event that he won back in 2016. Yeah, May 2016, when One Dance by Drake was the number one song, and the Angry Birds movie was in theaters. Seems like forever ago, and it kind of was, but that was when we were seeing prime Jason Day, and he is turning back the clock to 2016. He's playing some of the best golf of his career, and I think that he has a chance to, you know, keep that rolling with a good finish here at the players. Now, I'm willing to forgive his missed cut here last year. He was a part of the bad wave, and in between the win and the missed cut, he had some decent finishes. He came in fifth, eighth, and 35th, and so I like his track record of the course. He's shown some ability to win at P-Die courses, and his recent form is great coming in. I really like Jason Day this week, y'all. Tommy Fleetwood is another guy who has great course history here. He doesn't have a win because he's never won an American soil, but he does have a fifth, a seventh, a 22nd, and a missed cut in his last four tries at the players. And he's a guy that I question his winning upside genuinely because he has not won a golf tournament on American soil, and that's kind of everybody's knock on it. But with that course history, that's kind of hard to ignore. And if you play him on DraftKings or FanDuel and you get a top 20 out of him, that's something I'll be willing to live with any day of the week out of Tommy Fleetwood. We also have two former winners in the 7K range on DraftKings. They are Adam Scott and Siwoo Kim. Both have won this event. Both have played well at comp courses. In fact, all of Siwoo Kim's career wins have been at my long list of comp courses for this event. So this seems like a really good track for Siwoo. But here's the problem for Siwoo and for Adam Scott. I feel like the wins at this event are kind of baked into their price tag on DraftKings. And I would kind of prefer them to be a little bit cheaper. But at the end of the day... I still think they're solid options because of their history here. Sahit Tagawa has quietly played very good golf recently, and all of his career best finishes seem to come at TPC courses. But what would kind of concern me is he doesn't have a whole lot of experience at this event. He missed the cut in his only trip here last year, so he has only played two competitive rounds at TPC Sawgrass. Keegan Bradley is a name that we got to mention. He is actually tied with Justin Thomas and John Rahm with the longest made cut streak here at the players at six events. Now, what it's also worth noting that in the sixth one, Thomas and Rahm had something happen to them called an MDF, which I believe is like a Saturday cut. I'm not super familiar with that rule, but they did technically make the Friday cut. So Keegan, Thomas, and Rahm, those are the three guys that have made six cuts here at the players in a row coming into this event. Now, in the three March editions of this tournament, Keegan has upped his game especially. He's had a 16th, a 29th, and a 5th in the three March editions of this tournament. The question is with Keegan always is whether his putter is going to lose him seven strokes or just be neutral. If it is just neutral, it could be a ceiling week for Keegan Bradley. 
Ricky Fowler is another guy we got to mention because he has won this event before, and he's got seven straight made cuts in recent form coming in, and I kind of think that's a pretty good spot for Ricky. We know that he needs to start doing something if he wants to qualify for the Masters, and this would be a great place to do it at. A shorter positional golf course means that we could give a go to Seamus Power or Tom Hoagie here in the 7K range. I think both of them give you a lot of upside, and their lack of distance is not going to hurt them here at this course. Corey Connors is a guy that doesn't lack distance, and he doesn't lack success at this event either. He's made the cut in every March edition of this event, and he's made eight straight cuts in recent events coming in. So I think this is a great spot for Corey Connors. He's a guy that I don't know if he will ever win a major championship, but he can win a tournament like the players where it's more positional-based, it's more volatile, and kind of like Keegan, if he just has a good putting week and puts it all together, it could be a storybook week for Corey Connors. Keith Mitchell is a guy that we talk about a lot because of the Rory crossover, which seems to happen like everywhere, and Rory's won this event, so I would Keith Mitchell not have a track record to you know, to have success at this event. And Keith Mitchell has been playing really good golf recently. And it's been because of his success off the tee. He's been driving the ball really well. And I know that's probably not the determining factor here at the players, but if you are driving it long and straight, you are going to put yourself in an advantage and you're going to give yourself an even bigger advantage if you're hitting less than driver and hitting it straight because you're still going to be hitting it farther than your competition. Now, I kind of feel like there's a little bit of a drop-off here at this point. The lower half of the 7K range kind of gets ugly. I think that the winning upside like decreases significantly after you get below that little Keith Mitchell-type range, $7,400 on DraftKings. I think there's a lot of guys in this range, though, that do have legitimate top 10, top 5 upside. One of them is Taylor Pendrith, who came in 13th in his debut here last year. He is a very long hitter who has a track record of playing well at short courses, like the American Express, which is another P-Die design. Ben Griffin is your high floor, low ceiling guy. He's probably going to be a pretty chalky play in at $7,100. He just keeps making cuts and racking up top 20 finishes, and all of his best finishes have come at shorter, more positional golf courses, so I could see this being a good event for Ben Griffin. JT Poston has had some poor showings in his most recent elevated events, but I don't think that those are the best places for his game. He is not a long hitter, and he's you know, played some long tracks recently. And so I think that getting to a shorter track like Sawgrass could help him out a lot. He does have a win at the Wyndham, which is one of the crossover courses that I mentioned. And he has good finishes at the Sony Open and the American Express, two more comp courses. So I think that this could be a really good week to deploy JT Poston. Kurt Kitayama is worth mentioning. He is at $6,900 on DraftKings, and it feels pretty obvious that this price was made before he won the Arnold Palmer Invitational because if he won the Arnold Palmer Invitational, he wouldn't be $6,900. So maybe he's worth going back to for that, but I don't necessarily think that this is the great place for him to go back to back with. Now, the 6K range after Kitayama gets really rough really fast. I've played SH Kim a lot lately, and he just keeps making cuts. If you're looking for a guy who just makes the cut, he's probably worth a look. Justin Suh probably has the best recent form of anyone in this range, though, coming off of two really good finishes. And Adam Svensson, in my opinion, is probably the best fit for this course out of anybody in this range. Plays really well at shorter positional golf courses. Won the RSM Classic, which is just a few-hour drive away um, from TPC Sawgrass. And, you know, the course is pretty similar geographically. So I think this could be a really good spot for Adam Svensson. Davis Riley has recently switched caddies and in his two most recent events has a 29th and an 8th place finish. Maybe that caddy switch will allow him to unlock something and he's at a very affordable price on DraftKings. One of the oddities of this event is a guy who has really good course history and that's Doug Gim. 
Like, it's strange how well he plays here. In his two tries, he had a 6th and a 29th, and he hasn't really played that well pretty much anywhere else on tour in the two years that he's been on tour. Now, what's funny is that he was at Texas the same time Scotty Scheffler was, and so, like, he actually had more hype. Like, he was supposed to be a better golfer than Scotty Scheffler, and it didn't really work out like that. But, like I said, he's had a lot of success here. I could absolutely see just, you know, kind of punting a position away um, and playing Doug Gim on DraftKings or FanDuel. Nicholas Echevarria is worth mentioning because he won the Puerto Rico Open last week to get in this event. Um, generally speaking, guys who win to qualify actually have a decent track record at uh, the next week events because, you know, maybe you get that confidence boost, that adrenaline boost coming off a win, but he is only $6,100 worth mentioning. Um, and then two guys at the minimum price, Martin Laird and Aaron Baddeley, both have had a lot of success at the comp courses, and so they are worth a look as well. All right, that does it for the golfer profiles. Let's take a quick breather, and then we're going to talk some one and done. All right, let's talk some one and done. So last week in my two one and done competitions, I actually went with Rory McIlroy in one and Tyrrell Hatton in the other, and so I am not mad about either result. I'm actually really satisfied with getting a you know a top five finish out of Tyrrell Hatton. Getting a T2 out of Rory was pretty good. I was really hoping that he would make that last putt and make it to a playoff, but good week and one and done for me, right? So now let's take a look at this event, and this is an event where if you want to win a one and done, you probably want to get this one right because this is actually the biggest purse of any event on the PGA Tour calendar. However, it like we've talked about with this course, it is one of the most volatile events on the PGA Tour calendar and one of the most hardest to predict events on the PGA Tour calendar. So for this one, I would seriously recommend not playing anybody that like you have planned for a major because like what happens when you play like one of these big name guys like a Rom or a Rory or a Scheffler and then they miss the cut? Like, then you just get a big fat zero out of one of your absolute studs, right? But, like I said, it is one of the biggest, or it is the biggest purse of the year. So, you want to play, you know, somebody who has legitimate winning upside. So, I'm probably going to avoid, like, that top tier of Ron McElroy and Sheffler this week and probably go with a guy that's in the second tier. Like I said, Patrick can't lay everything shapes up well for him this week except for the course history. And I'll be honest, I can't envision myself wanting to use Patrick Cantlay in a major. Maybe I might want to use him at the Memorial, but if I still have John Rahm left, I would rather use John Rahm at the Memorial. So I definitely think Cantlay is worth a look. The guy that I'm probably going to end up going with, though, is Justin Thomas because he's won this event before, and I don't really think that this would be a good year to pick him at one of the majors. Um, he doesn't have the best track record at Augusta out of all the top guys. He you know, isn't a California guy for the U.S. Open, and he doesn't have a good track record at the British Open. So I actually think this could be a really good week to go with Justin Thomas. Let's get him at an event he's got before, and you know, he's got decent recent form coming in. It's been really good tee to green. He just needs the putter to cooperate. And so if the putter does cooperate, it could be a really good week for Justin Thomas. Another guy I'd be willing to go with, I would be willing to go with Will Zalatoris. Um, like I said, he is a good positional golfer. Generally speaking, it's more to his advantage when the course is longer um, because he is better with longer clubs than most. Um, but I do think this could be a good week for him. And then the last two that I do want to mention, Shane Lowry and Tom Kim. I could see going with either of those two guys this week. A lot of people might have used Shane Lowry at the Honda Classic, um, but 
I know a lot of people also use Tom Kim at the Sony Open, but I think that these are kind of like the last two guys that if you're looking on DraftKings or if you're looking at the odds, I think these are the last two guys that have like serious winning upside. They both carry a little bit of risk, but you're going to be a little bit different if you pick one of those, those two guys because I think a lot of people are going to pick from the top this week. Um, the two that I mentioned, Cantlay and Thomas, are probably going to end up being the two most popular golfers, but I definitely think that this is a good spot to play one of those guys where you haven't pigeonholed them for a major or another elevated event and you know just roll the dice this week because you know that it's very volatile but you also know it could be a big reward in it for you if you get it correct all right that does it for the one and done advice and that does it for this preview of the players championship i believe the whole preview was done in under 30 minutes if you don't count the intro the ad or um the interludes so i think i actually did that Anyway, that's all we got for this episode, guys. If you like what you're hearing, please hit that subscribe button. You'll be notified when new episodes drop. We will be back for the Valspar Championship next week. Uh, and if you are interested in college basketball DFS, we will be dropping episodes of that, the preview each nightly slate um, as we go throughout this conference championship week. It's a great time on the sports calendar, y'all. All right. Also, if you want to see my full DFS lineups, well, my official DFS lineups, not full lineups, official DFS lineups, head on over to um, the Patreon, patreon.com slash Mike's Money Picks. And make sure you follow me on Twitter at Mike's Money Picks. I drop some extra stats and facts that I don't always get to here on the show. Uh, and I'm always happy to answer any start, sit, or lineup questions. All right. So that does it for this episode, guys. Best of luck to whatever endeavors you have for the players and champions or the players championship this week, whether it is DFS betting or one and done. Best of luck to you. Hopefully I gave you some good advice. Thank you guys for listening and I will see you next time. Mm-hmm.